bats have left the bell tower and the victims have been plagued. Bella Lugosi is dead. Welcome everyone. This is the Feminerd Files and we are bringing to you a new podcast called Unlike Any Known Color. This is a podcast where Esty is mostly going to talk about horror films and I'm guest spotting here right now today because I don't generally like horror films, but I watched a couple so that Esty and I could talk about them. Esty, why don't you introduce yourself, uh, talk a little bit about why you wanted to do this podcast, and tell us about the title that you chose for this podcast. Well, thank you, Becca, and thank you for joining me. You're welcome. Unlike any known colors, it's very difficult to find people to watch horror with. We can debate a little bit how horrible these things are <laughs> going forward. But uh, yeah, just a longtime lover of horror films. And as a, as a woman, not, not so easy to find a community to have a discourse with. So this is very exciting for me. The name of this podcast comes from one of my favorite H.P. Lovecraft stories called The Color Out of Space. It's actually going to be made into a movie produced by Spectre Vision starring Nick Cage maybe in the next couple of years. So, Mandy, you know why that's very, very exciting. But generally, the idea from that story is that a meteor crashes into this landscape and it starts to warp and change and mutate and destroy the area around it. A bunch of scientists get together to try to discover what it is, to analyze it, to see what it's made of. And when they put it under a type of spectrum graph, it produces a color unlike any known color. And that line, when I read that, I think it was in high school. I mean, it still to this day makes me a little bit crazy. Because can you imagine a color? Unlike any unknown color, how does that make sense? So that's, that's the name of this podcast that I came up with. I think that's great. And I think it will give us a good sense of what we or you or us <laughs> want to talk about um, as far as how horror gives us a very unique way of looking at certain circumstances and how people react to certain situations. Um, So today we are going to talk about two different shows. Um, One, the film Velvet Buzzsaw, um, and then the uh, television show on Netflix, they're both on Netflix, right? Uh, Russian Doll. And um, I will say there will be spoilers. We'll be yeah. talking about the whole thing, so you have been warned. Yeah, you can't, you can't really not. I mean, I, personally, I am not necessarily spoiler-averse. I'm the type of person that I'll go on Wikipedia, and I will read the end, and I'll hear all the twists. And for me, it heightens my anticipation. My dread, my fear oh. is more keyed up. Because you're like, I know this is going to happen, but I don't know when. Exactly. And it's the classic idea that the monster you don't see is always the most frightening. Like, for example, this, I heard about this horrible movie called Human Centipede, <laughs> and I was really intrigued, so I went and read the Wikipedia, and it, it made me so sick to read this, and I was imagining what it looked like. And then when I saw it, I was like, yeah, that's gross. But I wasn't really <laughs> as grossed out as when I just read it and sat with it in my dorm room in New New Jersey. As you can imagine, that's very terrifying, very terrifying. Yeah, I think um, for me, I don't like gore. And so that's why I usually don't watch horror films. But I know there's a lot out there that rely on things other than gore. I would say both Russian Doll and Velvet Buzzsaw Mm -hmm. fall into that category. Um, So I will sometimes uh, look ahead of time and see if 
I, if there are things that are going to be gory, because then I know I can close my eyes. Um, but that's very interesting that you kind of have the whole story um, already mapped out ahead of time. I think, too, um, this idea that the human imagination conjures up things that are so much worse than they are in reality. It's like when you're going to go talk to a cute person and you're like, how is this going to go? It's going to go horribly. And mm-hmm. then you do it and it's not actually that terrible. Um, so I think in some ways horror films can give you a sense of that if they say, okay, this is going to happen, but we're not actually going to show you. And then you get to come up with that and it's so much worse in your head. <laughs> Absolutely. That's that's the most... I like things that make... well. It, We'll put it this way. I don't like to feel good. Now make of that what you will. (laughs) But I don't, the feelings of disquiet and dread, not necessarily disgust, those are the things that really, I don't know, keep my internal motors running. Um, I'll speak to this a little bit that professionally in my life, I am a criminologist and I study political violence, most specifically terrorism. And so I look at really awful things that people do and the impacts that it has. And then to unwind, I go read and watch movies and all that stuff about really awful things that people have done. And I always wonder what that means <laughs> about me. But, um, but yeah, so I, I love that stuff. The, the gross stuff I find, I don't like to use the word boring, but it is kind of boring. So I'm, I'm with you on gore, not just because it bothers me, because it's dull. Mm. It's like a cheap trick sometimes. Yes, I just saw one called Ritual of Death. It was this Brazilian movie that was made. I mean, it actually had a good plot, but it was just mostly disgusting, and it's not very scary. Fun. Yeah. Well, let's go ahead and talk about Velvet Buzzsaw. Um, I enjoyed it for the most part. Um, It wasn't necessarily my favorite um, film that I'd ever seen. Um, I really liked the intro like the title sequence with the drawings and stuff and whatever song was played during that intro. I really enjoyed that, and it kind of gave me this sense of what the movie might be about. Um, But in general, I thought that the film, great acting, great design. Um, I I liked um, a lot of the angles and the kind of cinematography, Um, but I felt like it didn't quite know what it was trying to say. Um, and the beats of the film didn't quite work for me. Like the way that the suspense was built felt very up and down, um, and so I never really felt that invested. I, yeah, I don't, well, there's not any character really that sympathetic enough for you right. to care yeah. whether or not something happens to them. Um, I, I liked it. I, most movies, another thing I'll say, I'm a huge fan of MST3K, mm-hmm. and in my opinion, any type of art is a minor miracle. So even though I might not like something, I'm never going to be one to crap on the people that made it. Sure. Um, this mo- I didn't. I didn't really care for it as a, a horror movie. I don't think it was too twee to be a horror movie. What does that mean? It is a little too precious. Oh, okay. And as someone sure. that watches a lot of it, um, I've seen all that stuff before. Mm-hmm. There's nothing really revelatory about it. Um, I was really excited for it because this was a pairing of the director Dan Gilroy and Jake Gyllenhaal. Gyllenhaal? Gyllenhaal? I think it's Gyllenhaal. My apologies, Jake, if you ever hear this. <laughs> um, because they had done, in 2014, they paired up to do Nightcrawler, Nightcrawler right. which was fantastic. 
And that's actually the first time I actually saw Riz Ahmed in oh, anything. Oh, yeah. So good. He's great. So it was really, I really love that. Um, Nightcaller actually won the feature best feature debut for Dan Gilroy at the Independent Spirit Awards. So, and I remember hearing a lot of scuttlebutt about how great that movie was at the time. So I was really excited for this one, and I was disappointed. Darn. A little yeah, bit. Yeah. I made a note too that there were things that I really liked. Again, as far as like the direction and the cinematography, but I also wrote because I don't watch a lot of these types of movies. I don't know how cliched it is. I don't know if these are very like typical kind of like horror shots or if it was unique in the genre. So I thought um, the performances were really, really great. Um, I'm a huge fan of Toni Collette and her character of Gretchen. Hereditary this year, also amazing. Did you see that? Nope. (laughs) Episode two. The trailer gave me scary dreams. So I probably am not going to see it, but... Well, read the Wikipedia like I do, yeah, and then we'll talk. There we go. Um, but so I thought, of course, Tony Collette was great. Great, Renee Russo as Redora was really great. Jake Gyllenhaal, um, Josefina, Josefina, and um, I felt like, as far as characters go, I felt like Coco was maybe the person we were supposed to relate to the most. This was a young intern played by Natalia Dyer, famous for. Uh, Nancy. Nancy and Stranger Things. things. And she had the same kind of doe-in-the-headlights look. Mm -hmm. But I feel like after I found the very first body, I would be like, I'm leaving the art world forever. And so she just had to, like, find everybody. Spoiler (laughs) one, she finds just about all the bodies and then moves back to Michigan. So she escapes unscathed Mm -hmm. physically. 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 I wanted to go back to what you said about the opening music. Yeah. Um, It's kind of, I would call it plucky. Hmm. And that it was a little upbeat, and it was also a plucking of stringed instruments. Mm-hmm. And for me, that reminded me a lot of the opening for American Psycho. Oh, 2000, yeah. directed by Mary Heron. Um, because when that movie starts, the title credits start, there's drops of red on a white background. And you're like, okay, here we go. Here's the blood already. But turns out it's like a raspberry coulee. Mm-hmm. And my thought when I started watching those credits, it reminded me so much of that. Are we supposed to take this seriously in the way that... Patrick Bateman is an unreliable narrator right. of his existence. I wouldn't necessarily say we're supposed to question how people are experiencing things in this movie. I think we're supposed to question how seriously we're supposed to think Dan Gilroy was taking this. Because yeah. he wrote it mm-hmm. and directed it. Absolutely. So I, wanna, I would like to talk a little bit more about it, and then I want to share some of the stuff that I read about oh, that okay. went into the making of this movie. Sure. That even though it doesn't make me like the movie more it makes me appreciate what it is yeah I definitely felt like when I had heard about it I had heard it kind of build as a horror comedy and I think it definitely had that kind of tongue-in-cheek aspect to it not only at the expense of the art world which is ridiculous and and Mm. had a lot of kind of interesting questions about um, what art is and how mm-hmm. we're supposed to interact with it. Um, but it definitely had that sense of lightness. You know, I never really felt like the threat was serious, especially because of how it very specifically targeted the people whose actions were quote unquote bad. You know, and that that was one thing that actually didn't work for me was the fact that in some cases, um, super duper spoilers, um, the way people died um, was directly related to how they criticized 
the art. So like um, Josefina was killed by having the like graffiti art, which she had ridiculed just before, mm-hmm. like kind of consume her, which I thought was a really kind and of cool sequence. Yeah, yeah was, I liked that, was that good. sequence. That was, that was creepy. And then Jake Gyllenhaal's character Morph, what a great name, um, yeah. was killed by Hobo Man, which... I knew Hobo Man was coming back because when I first saw it, I was like, that is the creepiest thing I've ever seen. (laughs) When we first meet Hobo Man, just to give you a sense, it's this kind of an android that looks like it's built of composite parts and then was rejected in a dumpster for a long time. Like maybe Mm -hmm. it was once a bellhop at a futuristic or a butler at a futuristic hotel and now it's been destroyed. And I wrote down some of the, the three things it said. Have you ever felt invisible? Mm-hmm. Once I built a railroad, and, and I, can't I can't save, save you. you. That yeah. was that was really creepy. But about the death, there was. This is the thing that I think Gilroy is a very skilled filmmaker, and that's obvious. I think what isn't so obvious is that he did his horror research mm. because there weren't. There were tropes that looked like the toe was dipped into, but there was no sense of the rules of why people were killed. There was no sense of order why people were killed in what order based on their level Mm. of, I guess you would say, offensiveness. Sure. And the background of this art, this ventral, ventral dies. Yes. Ventral, ventral 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 dies. I started to see if that was an anagram and I don't think it is. (laughs) I mean, I got devil out of it, so I got excited. There you go. So the, the idea is behind the film is that this, this woman, Josephina, it's in this very what would you say, superficial, any way that you've seen the art world represented as mindless and venal and superficial. And there even, there's even one scene where somebody finds a pile of trash and they, they bend down and they're like, this is remarkable. Right. And somebody goes, that's not art. Any cliche yeah. you've mm-hmm. heard about it, it that's totally represented here in this film. Um, so it starts off, but this woman, Josefina, in her uh, I guess apartment building, she finds a man has died and she goes into his apartment and there's tons and tons of this really creepy, weird art. And she sees it as an opportunity to you know, make her way into the art world even further. Well, lo and behold, as these paintings, they were supposed to be destroyed and they're not supposed to be profited off of. And if you look at them too long, then they move and you know, bad things start to yeah, happen. Yeah, they're somehow possessed with... But we never, we never understand why. Right, yeah, that was another thing that was hard for me, too, because they talk a little bit about Deese's trauma as a child, but it wasn't then manifested in a way that was consistent. So it was kind of like any sort of art that this person interacted with could then be inhabited with this spirit that then killed them. So it, it wasn't it even spirit? necessarily because the, yeah. the sphere wasn't a Deese piece at all. And that's what killed Gretchen. Um, so, yeah, there and then the monkeys in the, the, in the gas truck. Station. Yeah, the gas station yeah, place. Yeah, painting of monkeys playing poker, wasn't it? Yeah. I, kind, I liked the, the visual of it, move, like the camera moving and then showing it as 3D. Like, I yes. liked that kind of look. But, yeah, so there was definitely inconsistency as far as the retribution that the spirit of this man was attempting to give. (laughs) That's not even to say we don't need things to be explained to me. 
sometimes it's it's like with the monster you don't see the reason remains unknown you can't understand it and i think that's something we can talk about in russian doll a little yeah bit too. that's sometimes even scarier yeah but in in this context you know they give you a little i mean including black and white photos and all this this guy's bad past and that he produced all this art but you know did he make a deal with the devil is it supernatural at one point i was thinking is this actually going to be a supernatural thing, or is it just these people killing each other? Right. We don't know. Mm-hmm. And because it's so inconsistent in its application, that it's just really kind of meh. Kind of yeah. bland. Yeah, and it, at the very end, too, um, so what happens with... Um, Bryson? Is that his name? There's a man who the works, man yeah, who the works at the always in. Yeah, yeah, who works at the um, art gallery um, crashes his truck um, because he's transporting these paintings and mm-hmm. they basically cause him to to crash and so then the paintings are not recovered when the truck is recovered. So at the very very end of the film, you see someone who looks like they're experiencing homelessness that found this crate of paintings that is then selling them. So for a second, I was like, oh no, it's like Audrey 2, like the end of Little Shop of Horrors, where it's like, it's going to take over the whole world because now these paintings are going to be distributed. They're still going out, yeah. But then I was like, well, I felt like the reason that these people were dying is because as Morph's, as Morph says, like it's targeting the people who are trying to profit off the art. Mm-hmm. So then I was like, well... Does that kind of mean with Hobo Man kind of tying it together that art is for the people? And so if somebody is experiencing homelessness and like needs that, um, that there wouldn't be that kind of curse because this person is actually using this art to for their livelihood and not just for profit. I, I like <laughs> it. I don't think... I think you give it more credit than it did. Yeah, I think, I think it that, was just the stinger. Yeah. Oh no, the art will continue to murder. Right, you like know, there was know, that okay. sense of like there's always got to be the sure. zing at the end that yeah. lets you know that no, the monster isn't really dead. Yeah. So then I was like, okay, is it supposed to be about you're supposed to listen to the artist's wishes, which come, which to me brings up a really interesting idea of um, in our social media culture when like with the Captain America, most recent Captain America comic run, where he was um, shown to be an agent of Hydra, Mm -hmm. the fans just lost their minds. It was like, Mm -hmm. absolutely not. There's no way that this can be. So then I was like, well, do we listen to the artist because they are the ones that are creating this thing? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But also how much does an artist and creator have a responsibility to the people they're creating the artwork for. Um, Because Josephina at the very end says too, like, what's the point of creating art if nobody sees it? So I think for me, there were some interesting, like you said, dipping toes in this other kind of commentary of like, when Morph does the bad review for that guy, for Josephina, and he... She, it was her ex-boyfriend, yeah. so she wanted him slagged off, basically. And, and he, he like, did slag right off yeah, into a coma. So. Exactly. And so the way also that our negative reactions and negative words directed specifically at artists can be very harmful. So mm-hmm. I think, like you said, there was a lot of really kind of miniature ideas that just never coalesced. Yeah, there was some really interesting commentary 
I think, especially about, not about murder and death and suffering, but about art. Mm -hmm. And there are a few of those. I I wrote a few of them down. At one point, they talk, Morph talks to somebody who examined the artwork. And she oh, said, I, I was, I'm glad to have been rid of them because I was unable to differentiate the working materials from personal effects. And that yeah. talks about how, how much of you is in the art. Now, in this case, it was literal that there was blood that was in, used in the paintings. And at one point, it kind of, the, the painting bleeds a little bit. That was neat. I liked that, too. Um, so that, w- that was curious. Yeah, it was a very interesting and clever way of putting it. That they can't. So that's that she didn't just say, "Oh, he used blood." (laughs) He, he, you know, he cut himself and used blood in that. But, but that idea that, I mean, think about it. Not even just in art, but in your own work, Mm -hmm. to differentiate how how able able are you to differentiate your work from yourself? And for somebody that produces something like the writer on that Captain America issue, probably thought that that was going to be a great zinger, and then. As you know, the way that people tend to react. Don't ever read the comment section on anything. <laughs> yeah. Way. That's always a bad idea. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I thought that was that was interesting that they kept saying all art is dangerous mm-hmm. in that way to uh, Rhonda? No. Redora. Redora. I liked that name. I like that name as well. Redora had a tattoo on her mm-hmm. arm that said no death, no art. Yep. I liked that. And let's see. Oh, yes. At one point there, it's kind of a montage through an art show. And they're looking at it, and this guy goes, well, what does it say? And this gal goes, well, what do you feel? Yes. And he nods like, mm, yeah. <laughs> I, I really liked that, too, because I like a lot of modern art. And a lot of people don't. They're like, well, that's just trash or something like that. Mm-hmm. But for me, like, I go up to a piece, and I'm like, Sometimes it call, speaks to me, sometimes it doesn't, and usually it's like, oh, feelings, 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 and then i got to move to something else. So I, I really liked like those in particular. Some other funny things, though, um, when they talked about their early stuff was great, but then it became self-parody. <laughs> and I, I always thought about that, too. Yeah. What happens then to an artist that becomes successful? And you see that through the character played by John Malkovich, John Malkovich yeah. who was very successful... And now peers? mostly, yeah, peers. And then Not peers, peers. Yeah, <laughs> like Piers Morgan also yeah. don't read anything he writes. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the most of his career was turning into running a shop, replicating his earlier artworks. And the only stuff that was upstairs was a painting that nobody was crazy about and a pile of garbage that somebody thought was art and wasn't. Absolutely. I think um, all of these elements did make it what am I trying to say all of these elements were present and again I just felt like there was something missing some cohesion there were so many great like one-liner one-liners I think Morph at one point says we peddle perception no Redora says that Mm -hmm. when um she's trying to sell these these paintings because again if enough people say that something is good does that make it good do I then go and say, well, look how great this is because this famous person said it was great, when you may come in and be like, that is a turd. That is yeah. a literal turd on a pedestal. That's <laughs> so, not Yeah, so that I thought that was really too, interesting too. Gretchen, Tony Collette, they, she is alone in a gallery with this item called Sphere. Mm-hmm. And you're supposed to place you know, your arm inside of it and you're going to have 
some sort of sensation. And you can probably guess what happens. It chops your arm off and blood everywhere. That was actually a really cool scene. I liked that. It that was really good. Blood yeah, it was spraying, but the, the lighting underneath the sphere was white, but it mm -hmm. transitioned to, to a reddish pink. That was cool. Yeah. But then the scene that followed was pretty much hilarious because somebody, Josephine, is on the phone telling Rodora about what happened and that nobody understood that that was not part of the exhibit. Mm -hmm. So that they opened it up and people were going in and they were really into it and these little kids were tracking, stomping around in the blood, tracking it all over and then Coco comes in and screams her head off again. And that's how they discover it. It's like so hilarious, but also at the same time, of course, of course that would happen in this world. So I feel like that is the point, not, oh, whoa, why is this fear like chopping arms off? What, what is happening? This is what we're supposed to look at. So if, as a horror yeah. aficionado, not so satisfying. But as somebody that likes to think about other stuff, like weirdness of perception. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was thinking about that when they first introduced the idea of the sphere and that idea of the interactability of art because there's this sense that um, in Western culture, um, I don't know much about uh, global kind of art culture, but um, in Western art culture, there's this sense that you don't touch. You look, but you don't touch. Mm -hmm. So even when I've gone to museums that have these exhibits that say, please touch this, please interact with this, it's very uncomfortable. And many people don't because we have this sense of like, but no, somebody created that and I don't want to mess up right. their vision. And so absolutely when Gretchen dies and her body is still there you know people are like oh this is just part of this thing and are still interacting mm -hmm. with this piece so I thought that was really interesting as well like I don't know if I saw that especially because it was a kind of up on that pedestal mm -hmm. to me anything like on a pedestal I associate with like a big sign that says like do not ride this horse statue right. <laughs> and stuff like that so keep away yeah so yeah. that's always kind of interesting as well absolutely so are we to take this seriously? I don't think so. I think it's an exploration of what the genre is more than it is in the genre. I think it is a horror-tinged, creepy-momented commentary on art. And I, I think agree. that now I'll reveal the, the little research that I did about the background to this one, Dan Gilroy for a year and a half had worked on a film, it was Superman something. It was gonna be a big budget film. And after the success of Nightcrawler, people were really excited about it and he worked on it for a year and a half and the studio said, never mind. Oh. So then I was like, a year and a half of pulling full bore your artistic vision into something that was gonna have a lot of resources to manifest that vision. And then these people, these muckety mucks say, never mind. And that this project grew out of that. So when you see, I mean, we're left to speculate about Vetral Deese's, we know of his past, but why did he need to manifest his violence in art? We don't know. But I think when we know that Gilroy was professionally disappointed and that Buzzsaw, Velvet Buzzsaw, came out of that disappointment, or at least was influenced by it, that helps me appreciate the film a lot better. Yeah, and it's just I agree. like what what kind of movie is this? I don't know, but yeah, that's a really interesting insight. Thank you so much. 
Um, so why don't we transition to talking about Russian Doll? Yeah. Since Russian Doll is also, I wouldn't really categorize as horror, Mm-mm. which is how I had heard about it. Um, I would say episode seven is the closest it gets. Yes. Um, and so, again, there will be so many spoilers. Spoilers. So please go watch it. It's really, really good. It's eight episodes. They're under half an hour each. It's easy to get through in that way. So do it. Yeah. So what did you think? What was your first impression? Um, not crazy about it. Um, not because it wasn't sufficiently horror enough. But just, let me preface it by saying it's because of me. And I forgot one great line from, from Velvet Buzzsaw, what Morph says. He says, critique is so limiting and emotionally draining. <laughs> so we'll try to limit the drain here. Mm-hmm. But I'd lived for 10 years in New Jersey, which is very close to New York City. And watch a lot of TV and, and movies. And I'm really, really over this idea that New York is the place where things happen and all the... Uh. That, that typical trope about artisans and, you know, all this stuff. So when it was plugged into that again, I was, I was, I was not happy about it. And kind of like the way that L.A., the worst side of L.A. was shown mm-hmm. in Velvet Budsaw. Mm-hmm. Kind of like the most predictable, tropey, well, doll is dishwater to me, tropes about New York were also on display in Russian Doll. So it was... Ah. It was not really very, that was hard for me to get through. The first episodes to get through were, they were really difficult for me. Okay. And then it it really picked up. Perspective. Yeah, six, seven, eight. Yeah. Last last episodes, they were really good. And that's because it got a little bit creepier and less la boheme. Yeah, I think for sure the first, yeah, three or four episodes are definitely funnier. They are definitely more facetious. Um, I think um, kind of the idea of that kind of lifestyle. I really liked that juxtaposition. Wow, that was hard to say. Um, Between that kind of um, ridiculousness in the first part of the show and then how devastating it gets later on. The the payoff is worth it. Absolutely. It nails it. Even for someone like me that really didn't like it was like I gotta get through this but I was like oh yeah 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 it it made it worth it for sure I'm glad I really like um Natasha Lyonne plays Nadia um I've always been a huge fan of her ever since probably but I'm a cheerleader yeah um it's probably my first real foray into her work me too um I really liked um how coarse um and savvy she was, and how she was kind of an asshole, um, but that I was invested in what was going on with her. Um, she has charm, even though, as people tell her, she's the most selfish person that they know. Yeah. yeah. I also really liked that idea that um, she kind of gets into this sense, I guess we should do just a really quick yeah. overview of what this is. So yeah. Russian Doll okay, is about sorry. a woman. <laughs> I know. We're, since we're spoiling it, we are assuming that you've seen it. but Or read the Wikipedia like I do. Yeah. Um, so it's about this woman who is celebrating her 36th birthday. Um, but sounds like she's 72. Yeah. Um, and she um, is going throughout her party and um, trying to find her missing cat. Oatmeal. And she, I love that name. And she ends up dying and then waking back up in, in the, the same bathroom. place, same time, um, and has to basically 
I wouldn't even say relive, but she's experiencing this loop of dying over and over in different ways. Um, I like that there wasn't this idea of um, the death we know is later linked to Alan. Um, Another man who's caught in a time Caught in this loop of of deaths, but... um, I like that the deaths weren't consistent. It wasn't like, oh, we know when it's going to happen, and it's not always going to happen in the same way. But I really liked how she attempted to change the outcome in a certain way because she thought that this was happening because of certain actions of hers. So through each loop, she was trying to rectify those actions, like with her ex-husband, ex-boyfriend? Were they married? I don't know. I no, can't remember. Never married, no kids. Right. Lots of fibroids. <laughs> right. Um, with her ex-boyfriend and the way she treats people, but that isn't what ends up actually and even that, that being important. That idea that oh, I need to correct something came a lot later. Right. Um, I wanted to share. I I love science fiction. I'm a big fan of the Twilight Zone. So right away, I knew that I'd be into this as a concept because it's this thing called a time loop. Mm-hmm. And generally, time loop as a trope has two different forms. The one is that the time loop is some kind of puzzle. That things change, and that by things changing, you attempt to figure out how to break out of that time loop. The other is that things will never change, and that you're you're imprisoned in that loop forever. And so I was reading a little bit about time loops, and of, of course, when you think about Reliving over and over, we're, what, like a week away from Mm -hmm. Groundhog Day. So, of course, the 1993 movie with Bill Murray, we're going to think of that one. I Um, did watch this on Groundhog Day for that reason. Perfect. (laughs) There's also just two years ago, Happy Death Day. Yes. Another time Mm -hmm. loop one. I didn't see that one because at that point, I I saw it in the theater 15 times. So I was was busy. And And that's going to be simple. Happy Death Day. Yes, to you. Very cute. (laughs) Um, And then another one that I read about that actually won, uh, was nominated for an Academy Award. It was a short film called 12.01 p.m. 1990. It starred Kurt Wood Smith Hmm. as a man who's caught in a time loop. And it's the permanent time loop, the one that's fixed. Uh And spoiler for that one, it ends with him knowing that nothing he could do to be, you know, murder or suicide will ever get him out of that. So, you know, is it purgatorial is it damnation we're not very sure but so time loops are are really really interesting and I think when you couple the time loop with the idea of the Russian doll what do you think of that that I I wrote down so I could pronounce it correctly the matryoshka doll those nesting Mm -hmm. Russian dolls the outer layer usually a woman and the inner layer traditionally solid wood a baby Mm. and just a little trivia the largest one ever was created in what was it? The 2000s? 51 pieces. Oh, okay. So, why call it Russian doll? I'm always interested in why they call things what they call them. So, yeah. that idea that not just a loop, but the fact but that digging nesting, in. yeah, to going down, do we have to get at something inside may be the key to breaking out of the loop. Which brings us to episode seven, uh, which Jumping. was so amazing, I thought. I th- I really appreciated this idea of having to kill something within yourself that is preventing you from moving on. Explain for what that meant. Um, so in quite quite interesting. 
I'll start you off okay. and then you jump in. Okay. <laughs> so she's deciding, Nadia's deciding that she needs to do things a little differently. She needs to not be so selfish, it seems like. And one of the things that she wants to do to make amends is this, this ex-boyfriend, John, who their interactions at, uh, I guess it was a synagogue, were hilarious. Yes. Hilarious. <laughs> um, but she and he got together while he was married, broke up their marriage. She was supposed to meet his daughter, and she chickened out. And he's all really devastated by all this. So she decides that she's going to meet this girl, Lucy. She's going to bring her a book, not as a present, but as something that we share. So she goes to meet the daughter, and she's speaking with her. And So uh, throughout this episode... Nadia starts seeing visions of herself as a child. Um, I will say that for a while, I thought that Ruth um, was her mother. Like, the way that she talked to her and about her. Um, Who's also a psychiatrist. Yeah, yeah. I thought was, was Nadia's mother. And that they just had this very, like, interesting relationship. So then when Nadia kept talking about her relationship with her mother and how fraught it was Mm -hmm. episode seven starts giving us these flashbacks of what it was actually like um, as a child to be with her mother who was experiencing some sort of eating disorder um, some a lot of self-loathing a lot of sort of mental instability that Ruth um, as the psychiatrist was very adamant she said several times in this whole show like we don't say the word crazy in this house Mm -hmm. Um, which I really appreciated too this being a female centric story written by women directed by a lot of women so many women get called crazy Mm -hmm. all the time for things that aren't (laughs) that I really appreciated that kind of aspect to it let me piggyback on that because I I love too that throughout the whole thing as this she's experiencing these time loops she never thinks oh I'm going crazy she never says that yeah she she thinks it's the the universe is fucking with me and I will not engage this is the game I'm Michael Douglas never once oh god I'm losing my mind not once does one of the deaths come because she hangs herself or ODs, or stays in her apartment and starves to death. It's never, She's always trying to fight it. Yes. No, never once questioning her sanity. Yeah, and so seeing this relationship with her mother that caused her to basically feel this disquiet and this, um, this sense of worthlessness, I think, in herself that was so buried, that was Mm -hmm. so nested within all of these other layers of her being a successful game designer, which I loved, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, having these relationships with a lot of different people that clearly people tolerated her presence and like were friends with her. But, you know, like they said, she was very selfish. So she starts seeing visions of herself as this child, and that's where it got kind of creepy. Where it like yeah, it started the started to get camera angles and the the ways that she was trying to figure out why she was seeing herself. So then, when she goes and decides to go finally talk to the Lucy, daughter yeah. Lucy, um, it devolves into this sense of when are you going to let go, like why aren't why are you stuck in this 
thing that you've been carrying with you for so long. And mm-hmm. I, for me, for somebody that has gone through therapy um, continually um, and is constantly working on being better and constantly figuring out why I make certain choices or why I feel a certain way in reaction to certain things, mm-hmm. um, I really, really appreciated that her understanding of this time loop was related to something deeper than just the way she interacts with other people mm-hmm. and the the selfish ways she did that. Yeah, it was something like the Matryoshka dolls inside that she had to to let go of, for sure. I definitely I, think a second viewing will give me more insight into that. I think I was kind of consumed so much with like wanting to conclude it and like mm-hmm. figure out what was gonna happen that uh, I, I think did read that they think they'll get like three seasons that'd be out of awesome this. yeah again like velvet Buzza, we spoiler here we don't know why alan and nadia are stuck in the time loops right we don't we have no idea why mm-hmm. and we don't actually know if they're successful the end scene is really remarkable yes we don't know what what has happened at the end of the they figured something out right but what does that mean but that's another reason why I loved episode 7 so much Mm -hmm. not only did it get a little darker in that way but up to that point I feel like we all including the audience possibly speaking for myself but also Nadia and Alan got comfortable in the predictability Mm -hmm. of the time loops Absolutely. But as episode seven progresses, you start to notice they're noticing like bowls of fruit that people would have on their mm-hmm. tables or at the local deli where they visit Ferran and where oatmeal lives part time, that the fruit is rotting. And as the loops progress, they notice things start disappearing. And that brought a real sense of disquiet because now the rules were changing. Yes. And we don't know why. And I got the sense that we're in a time loop, but time is running out. Right. <laughs> it's like spinning yeah. a top. It'll mm-hmm. spin for a while. We'll have a, a few time loops, but whatever kinetic and potential energy is in those loops is is running out. What does that mean that they think because they haven't figured out how to stop them? Or is it just the inherent nature of this particular time loop that you that spin it's in finite. it mm-hmm. and that you try to do all these things and then it's over? Mm-hmm. So at the, the end of episode eight, we're not. I don't know what it means, but that I can't say enough about how much I liked episode seven particularly in that way that it started to get scarier. Yes. I mean, not like dying 15 times and not understanding why it would be scary enough, but that the rules were changing and yes. that things were getting, things disappearing. It was frightening. It was really frightening. Yeah, and I really liked episode eight, um, partly because after episode seven, in which the rules changed, and you didn't know what to expect. All of a sudden, like you said, I think we do get this sense of complacency. We're like, okay, well, she's going to loop, and but she's going to wake up in the same place and the same time, and it's going to be fine. She just has to figure it out. But then things start changing and disappearing and molding. And um, by episode eight, after I'd seen episode seven, I was like, something is going to happen. I was like waiting for mm-hmm. the other shoe to drop. And what was so clever about it was I don't, I discovered what was going on, I think like half a second before it was revealed. Yeah. Because you really get this sense of unease as 
things are progressing, you have this sense you're like, this loop is different. There is something not right about this. Mm -hmm. And then that moment when you realize they're not in the same place, I was like, the loops are not intersecting. And I thought that was so clever and so well designed, even just in the way that the screen then showed like the different places oh I really really like it and then the way at the very end it came merged together again yeah it was that was brilliant so as much as I struggled with those first episodes the payoff in seven and eight were so totally worth it yeah that way and uh, yeah I mean like I said at the start like I don't like feeling good and these episodes man man they really make you feel bad yeah not in the way like I feel sad but just like when you don't understand what's happening or when Maybe if you have, like, a cold and your balance is off. Yeah. It's that kind of queasiness. And the real fear that they expressed in those episodes, the first when things were disappearing, mm-hmm. and then in episode eight when they both realized that their loops are not intersected, it was more dread Yes. in those times than at the start of the loop. Mm-hmm. At the start, it was played for laughs, basically, right? Yeah. How can you get... I get electrocuted here now, and I fall down the stairs like 19 different ways. It's, right. It was, it was funny, but then it, then it took the turn. Yeah, and I really liked um, the way that they explored Alan and Nadia's relationship. Um, I thought that Alan, played by Charlie Bennett, um, was kind of the perfect foil for Nadia's character. He's very up right? <laughs> she comments on his posture. posture yeah. um, and kind of uptight, you know, he's very, you know, his apartment is very organized and very clean, but then we also see him after his breakup with his mm-hmm. girlfriend, you know, consuming all this cake and like... I have stuff to say about Feeling that. very messy, but I really liked how when they first discovered each other and first kind of started on this journey of like let's try and figure this out together, it wasn't romantic. They have sex in one of the loops, but it doesn't feel... Well, kind of. Yeah, like, sort of. <laughs> yeah. He's very drunk, so I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but it doesn't feel like... Then, when episode 8 comes along, and they realize they're in two different loops, they still are somehow connected, and they have established this connection in this relationship where they're like... We have to help each other, even though if, even though you are not the person I've been helping. So I really liked that. I liked that it was, you know, not this need for Nadia to, like, find this person and then find understanding and then it was a romance. Yeah, yeah, like, it was just a very, really interesting and dynamic relationship where they call each other out on stuff and they are not compatible, but they're very both invested in... They're helping each other. Yes, that's mm-hmm. a good way of putting it. But the, it works that way. Yeah, so talk about Alan a little bit. Well, first <laughs> of all, my big bugaboo about his girlfriend, B, Beatrice, she is completing a PhD in literature, which Nadia says is useless. I, do, I disagree. But you're working on your dissertation. You live in an apartment like that in New York City. Listen, I'm plugged in to right? the science fiction element, <laughs> fantasy element of the time loop, but that made me insane. I was like, no, I right? hate that. I hate this. Yeah. I think I grumped for like two seconds because <laughs> I've been working on a dissertation for a long time, and it's, no, you don't live like that. You yeah. sure don't. Okay, that was all I need to say. <laughs> yeah, really, but I, really I think that, 
I loved the scene where Nadia comes with Alan for the breakup. Yeah. And it's just like sitting there just like eating chips. and Those like crackers, crackers are good too. Yeah. They're, they're gluten-free. I've tried nice. them. They're not bad. Nice. Um, but yeah, where she's like, I'm here for you and I'm going to like see what's going on to see if we can suss out what's going on with your loops. And it was just great. She's just got this great energy, Natasha Leone does, that she brings to to this character with the very curly hair and um, the gruff voice. And yeah, the smoker's voice. And yeah, and the, the posture, the like hunched over. that lives in that area too, that idea that they speak about her Jewish ancestry, even though she doesn't practice, like her mannerisms are very consistent with that. My mm-hmm. favorite line reading that she had is when Ellen's like, wow, you're a really smart person. She goes, hey, thanks for finally noticing. <laughs> you know, I'm yeah. oh, that was great. Yeah. I really liked that, yeah. Um, so what was your uh, reaction to the character of Horse, the homeless man? Because I originally thought, I had heard before I started mm-hmm. watching it that she met somebody else who was also looping, mm. and I thought it would be him. Yeah. Like when she first met him. Yeah, the way that he spoke in the, the tropey way, the, you know, the... the person who has experiencing homelessness is crazy and right. you know sees things um which is always a little bit annoying to me because um, it's it's a trope these are real people with real issues mm-hmm. that we can do something about and we don't that's another discussion different <laughs> podcast altogether so initially i thought yeah but of course the way my mind works is like oh he's a murderer too oh <laughs> but um no i really they she develops a, a tenderness towards him um one point when she's failed at certain tasks that she set herself in this loop. She's wandering around drunk looking for the cat. She meets horse and they speak and she allows him to cut her hair and the death in that loop is that she freezes to death mm-hmm. next with him. Um, and then later she goes to the homeless shelter where he's at. Because he said somebody stole, stole his, his shoes. shoes. And so he wasn't going to go back and um, she prevented his, his shoes from being stolen. And then later she she returns the shoes, uh, she takes Alan's shoes <laughs> to him. But my favorite interaction between them, and I felt like he he was a catalyst in a, a few ways maybe for her not to like, oh, I need to be nice to people that need help and that way I'll break free of this. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like that. And I'm glad it didn't turn out like that because that's dull. It's been done. Um, but the fact they were, they were speaking and... Nadia wears, what do they call it? The Krugerrand. The Krugerrand, which yes. is a South African gold bullion. It was a coin. Nadia wears one around her neck. She later reveals to Alan that her mother was gifted 150 of these mm-hmm. coins from her Holocaust surviving grandparents and that her mother ended up spending all of them, save one. And in fact, the, the exact monetary amount is the way that the two loops finally intersect again in that way that she can get in touch but that's a gold coin and she gives it to him she Mm -hmm. gives it to horse and he says is that gold she's like yeah he's like why don't you want it she says it's too heavy Mm -hmm. and that was that was great and I think the way that he looked at her he understood it because he was Mm -hmm. talking about how having stuff doesn't make you a person and that it weighs you down yeah, and that ties in perfectly. Does that does she have that interaction in episode seven, or does it come after? Is it in um, episode eight? I feel like it's one of the very last things. 
I the last I think, one of last interactions she has with him. I don't have it in my notes, so I would say either six or seven. Okay. Things started to get heavy in six when they're noticing dead fruit and flowers. Right. So it might have been there. Yeah, because that too is so perfectly symbolic of her relationship with her mother and the, the stuff that she confronts mm-hmm. in episode seven, this heaviness that is preventing her from from moving on. I really loved it. Um, yeah, I think I first started watching it, and I really enjoyed the... the what is the word I'm trying to think I of? I'm not the convention, I guess. Say, we're, not, we're not sharing a loop. I can't <laughs> No, tell. I know. Um, the, just the idea of it and how it was manifested. But, yeah, I think it really got to a very important place. And I think it ended up feeling much more significant than it initially Absolutely. turned out to be. Because it's co-produced by Amy Poehler. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the funny stuff is very funny. It's yes. very funny. And I thought that's all it would be. I like funny stuff, sure, but remember, I don't like to feel. <laughs> so it was like a, ti- a ha-ha time loop. Any time loop stuff that I've seen, even like Groundhog Day, gets pretty dark. Mm-hmm. So when it started off, I was, uh, I, don't, I don't know. And the payoff, even when we started our conversation, I was like, oh, no, crazy about it. And the more that we talked about it, got through all this, and like, no, I really liked it. So, but my concern is season two and season three. Mm-hmm. The episode started like up here and pointing up high, and now I'm moving my finger down because it got it got heavier, it mm-hmm. got darker, it got more frightening. Are they gonna? We're gonna have hot, funny, haha times, and then are we gonna do oh, a cycle mm-hmm. of peaks and valleys for season or two or three? Or are we gonna start? Are we gonna low? start darker and keep? Mm-hmm. I don't know if you can keep going dark. With, yeah. But somebody like Natasha Lyonne and Amy Poehler and those types of people that, because the comedy is really good and it works. Mm-hmm. So I'm afraid that it'll be inconsistent and that when the season starts and we're back to hijinks, I'll be a little disappointed because I'm really plugged into six, seven, and eight Mm -hmm. and how serious and cathartic it started to get. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think there are other people that they will find that are also experiencing the same sort of thing? Or do you think that'll remain focused on Nadia and Alan? I don't know. That's always, that's always the problem. I can't think of an example right now. Maybe some other people can leave one in the comments. <laughs> and I won't read it, no. <laughs> but, you know, when a, a show is successful and it has a dynamic relationship between people, but, you know, you need to move the story forward so you introduce another element. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, what was his name? Cousin Oliver, Brady Bunch. When everyone got too old, they needed a little kid again, and everyone hated that poor little redheaded guy. Yeah. So that's was he redhead? See, I can't remember. Sorry, Wesley Cousin Oliver, from Star Trek: Next Generation. Yeah. So <laughs> that's my fear. Is like, I bet they will. They'll meet other people looping, and maybe some people will loop out, and they'll understand how it works then. Mm. But I'm only projecting that in that way because I've seen similar things like that. And my hope is that they find some something different to do, like they did in episodes six, seven, and eight. Yeah, cool. Well, I am excited to see more yeah. of that. We um, have to wait. Yeah. Well, we've been chatting about this for an hour. We have. I hope you have all enjoyed listening and hearing sure our take on Russian Doll and Velvet Buzzsaw. It sounds like we're both kind of... Velvet Buzzsaw, I think, is worth watching. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, but, yeah, 
For you sure. know, there's definitely, uh, it's not like a typical horror film. Just so. manage your expectations better than I do, apparently. Yeah, and then Russian Doll, um, I loved um, absolutely and wholly, uh, including the beginning episodes. Um, but if you're having a hard time getting into it, um, stick Hang with on. it. Yeah, it will it, definitely be worth it. The payoff is definitely worth it, for sure. All right, well, you can find this very new podcast called Unlike Any, any Other. Any, oh, pardon me. <laughs> I was going to say it Unlike wrong anyway. Unlike Any Known Colors. Unlike Any Known Colors on thefeminerdfiles.net. You can also find us on Spotify, Podbean, and iTunes.